Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley, and I've been involved in the family office investment world for over 20 years. Casey Whalen has had a remarkable investing career, starting at the Yale Investments Office, working at Rockefeller University, becoming the youngest CIO of the New York Public Library, running $3 billion at Truvo Partners, and now heading up Lazard's Family Office Partners. Casey and I talk about the many lessons she learned from David Swenson, and I especially liked her stress on getting alignment with all the players in an investment program. We also talk about the importance of the right frameworks, private investments, letting go of managers, and dealing with customized portfolios for wealthy clients. Please enjoy my interview with Casey Whalen. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. I'm just curious what your first interest in investing was. I don't have that story of kind of growing up looking at stocks. I actually grew up with, my dad was a um, contractor and my mom like worked at the local bank, but I was really good at math. I had amazing, when I look back, I went to public school, but I had really amazing math teachers and I always liked math because there was an answer, right? You always have an exact answer with math. So I think that combination, as I got older, I always thought about that I would like a career that had something to do very simplistically with math. And so when I got to college, I looked at, I ended up being an economics major, which is pretty, it's liberal arts. So you're not really that practical kind of in what you're doing. But even within that, I was more geared towards the micro than the macro, in terms of just what I enjoyed. And and really, honestly, when you go, when we, I was at Yale, the path that you really took was between basically banking and consulting. That's what a lot of the job offers were that you were brought in, especially if you came from my background where we just, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about what else was out there, except for friends that had graduated before me. So actually, I was really lucky that my senior year, so lucky, met David Swenson. Actually, he taught a senior seminar and I was able to take that class. I think it was like 13 or 14 of us where he would bring in money managers. And I remember thinking, this is so amazing that a nonprofit educational institution is bringing in all these kind of really interesting investment managers. And so that was really my first foray because when I was in school, I graduated in the mid nineties. I joke around that we barely knew the difference between a stock and a bond when we graduated. It was so liberal arts focused. There weren't really finance courses other than David's class. There was He also taught another bigger class like intro to finance, but that was really it. And so a lot of it was just learning from managers. Like he would bring in the chieftain guys. I think he brought in you have to be older to remember, but Antoine von Ockmel, who started EMM, I remember he showed us a chart of when he started in emerging markets and then up, down, up, down over the years. And then he ended it and it ended like at the same point. And we were all really confused about why anybody would ever invest in that <laughs> and then learned about volatility. And, and so that was really my entry. And I found it really interesting. I love the global aspect of it and got in, And really, that was my introduction to investments was that class. Did you ever um, consider any other careers? Well, I've always had, I always think about maybe like longer term. I my not the nonprofit piece has always been something I really enjoy. Like I really, when I decided to leave nonprofit, I actually had a lot of discussions about it because my heart is always in. I loved going to work every day, knowing, especially I got to work at some pretty amazing institutions that I'm really grateful about. And there's nothing better than feeling like the work that you're working on is going towards something positive in the world. So I think. I try to funnel that now through some pro bono work 
and things like that on committees and stuff. But that's something I always think maybe I'll get back to later on. But but no, I really, I got really lucky. I fell into this world. It happens to be like a, a very intellectually stimulating world. You're constantly, I always tell people the learning curve is steep and, and it doesn't matter what level you're at, you're still learning new strategies, new areas, you're stretching your mind. And so I think I got really lucky. I went, I had one experience where I went to work for a manager, which was great that David helped me do and really had a great experience, worked for in real estate, worked for some great individuals, but decided ultimately that I really missed the global multi-asset class perspective. So yeah, so I've pretty much been in it since I graduated college. Which now I graduated in 96. So it's been a while. (laughs) So how did you end up in that seminar? I know his class was very selective and that was the first step along the way. So how did that come about? Yeah, it's funny. Remember, I was, this was back, I would have entered that class in 95 because I graduated in 96. So David was very well known on campus and by endowment people, but he wasn't, he didn't have the recognition that he has obviously in his legacy today. But it was a well-known class, and you had to be an econ major, this se- seminar to take it. So the first thing was just being an econ major. I joke around with him, and I, it's not fair to talk about it now because he's not here, but that there was only a few women, and there were less women economics majors. So there was three or four of us, and I joke around that we like automatically got in. But we had to write, he does not agree with that take, but we had to write essays basically to get in about why we wanted to take the class. And I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but a lot of it was just around really learning more about investment world, be sitting in a liberal arts education where you're learning a lot of theoretical constructs, but not a lot about practical uses of that. Did you have to do a a thesis there? I did not. I ended up writing an essay on like Tobin's Q, which thing about whether you like build or buy and worked with David on that. And how did you end up working in the office? I got a lot of exposure through that class. And then after he would bring in the managers, oftentimes the managers would say, let's go for like pizza and beer at Yorkside or Naples. And I don't know why, but there was only like a few of us that would go. I joke around, maybe we were the poorest in the class, but we would go. And so we got even more kind of informal exposure to them. And frankly, David, because we were in, it would be like the manager, David, and then a few, like maybe three or four of us. And so I was talking to him about interviewing. And like I said earlier, I was really going for investment banking and, and consulting interviews and really mostly investment banking. I'd have Again, friends above me at all the banks. And I really thought that was the track that you should take, should being the key word there. And so he really opened my eyes about what else was available. And David David came to Yale at age 30. But prior to that, he had gotten his PhD at Yale. And then he went into Wall Street. He worked at like Solomon Brothers and Lehman. And he worked on one of the first, I think it was like the World Bank IBM swap. So his few years in, in banking was very formative in him not being, as people I think know generally, that was not an area he felt was the best place to be. So he really encouraged people to think outside the box in terms of careers coming out. And as I was talking to him about the interviewing process, I was a little frustrated with it, to be honest, because I had grown up competitively swimming and I swam at Yale. And when you get questions like, 
I don't think you can. And it wasn't like, can you handle the work? It was, I don't think you could handle the work here. Or they really try to push you on the workload and the hours. And and after a while, I just found it like a little bit ridiculous because I swimming's crazy. We like grew up doing morning practices and training anywhere from two to sometimes six hours a day, depending on what was going on. And so I felt like I was pretty tough from that perspective. And working hard was not like an issue that I had. Um, And so I was talking to him about it and about how navigating these interviews and knowing that you were supposed to answer them a certain way, but I found it not authentic. And, And by the way, I think these training programs are great and they do a really good job training baseline people. But anyway, I was going down that road and David said one day, this was when jobs, you got them a lot later. It wasn't as early as it is today. And I remember we were leaving for spring break and I ran into him at one of our pizza joints. And he said, Casey, I really like that. It was some essay I'd written. He's, I think you should interview for the job at Yale. And I remember I was like, wow. And then he left and I looked at my friend and I said, oh, I didn't think I'd ever stay in New Haven, but I guess I better apply for the job. And it was really serendipitous because I had not applied through the original process. And I think they had someone they had actually given the job to. And that person ended up reneging on it to go to Arthur Anderson Consulting, which is so interesting in retrospect. And so they were going out and trying to find, I think, people. And David really liked to hire people out of the classes or if you had interned there previously. So I ended up interviewing and got the job. And he convinced me to stay in New Haven. It was not a hard, he's very persuasive. So it was not a hard, it's not a hard decision. Was he anything special about the interview process or was it straightforward? Were they looking for anything in particular? It's really straightforward. They're definitely looking, again, we're liberal arts kids. So your functional knowledge is not, is not great. I remember the banking interviews, right? They were always like, how would you be better than a Wharton kid? And you're like, I don't have the knowledge a Wharton kid has at that age. But no, it's just, they're very qualitative, much in the same way that David taught us to interview managers, the aspects of understanding people, what drives people, how they view the world, what's important to them, I think. And and you was able to meet like a large, the team at that point, probably won't get the exact numbers, but I think we were about 12 people able to actually meet with a bunch of the team members. And because they ended up it didn't happen every year, but at that time, they were really only hiring one person a year. So Seth Alexander was a year above me. So you could talk to people that were right there. And then Lauren Meserve had been, and I think Ted's year had been like three years, or no, Ted was older than that. Ted, Lauren was like three years above me, and she was going on to her next job opportunity. But I was, Lauren's now a CIO at the Met, but I was able to talk to her too about her experience there and stuff. So it was pretty well-rounded from that perspective. And how did they get you up to speed? They just throw you in. The one thing is you have to take the CFA. So that was something right away that having no baseline knowledge, we were all thrown into the CFA. And then David, I think, was a real... He, in retrospect, you just have no idea at the time. He really loved mentoring and educating, and he would just throw us in. He would just put us... So any manager that would come in, we would get to go in the meeting. And again, because the team wasn't that big... We could do that. He, you'd read, you could read old investment committee books. He was really big on writing out your investment thesis and that the whole kind of process of writing out the investment committee memo was really important because you had to basically construct your thesis for why you wanted to make the investment. And going back and reading through those was really helpful. But I remember laughing because I, we were, we did work on an Asia based manager in Singapore. And we had dinner with them. David always liked to have dinner with everybody to make sure they were like good people. And we were going to be partners with them for a long time. So it mattered what they were like in 
social settings too. And so we had dinner in New Haven. They had been visiting. And one of them said to me, like, do you find it surprising that David just like puts you guys like right out of school in these meetings and they have you like asking the questions and like almost, can you believe it? Because we can't believe it. And I remember saying, yeah, no, it's a little surprising to us too. And we appreciate you guys being willing to interact with us. But so the first year was like drinking out of a hose. And then, but then you develop relationships. And like over time, I did a lot like initially on the foreign equity portfolio. So I had developed a lot of relationships on the foreign equity side, like right away from just checking in every month and like seeing what's going on and having conversations. But a lot of it was through osmosis, just like watching him and watching the senior people in the team and how like Ted Seides was five years above me. So I learned a lot from Ted going to meetings with him. I joke around that again, this was very liberal arts. Like I didn't even know what a short was and... I didn't like I sat in a meeting and I didn't really understand it. So I like went to Ted and I was like, can you explain to me what a short is? So it was really early days there, but it was really just throwing us in and we were not, it was not looked positively upon to read Wall Street research or market outlooks or any of that. So it was really reading our manager letters, doing manager meetings, and really, I call it like the mosaic of taking in all those data points and then coming up with a view on things from that. Everyone's read the book. And certainly one of the amazing things and interesting things about Yale, and lots of people have told me this, is you wouldn't know any of these managers. You wouldn't come across these managers. But at the same time, there's I'm sure everybody wants to get a Yale investment. So what was it like to filter that? Yeah. So on the sourcing side, which we can get about later, but it's interesting because a lot of the ideas, if you think about the early days of the hedge fund industry or some of these industries, families were actually the initial investors in a lot of these things. So what we were doing oftentimes was backing a group that either we were spinning out of a larger organization and backing, or they had like family money and we were the first institutional money. And so we were doing, and David talks about this a lot, like uninstitutional things but we were applying institutional due diligence on it. And so I think that was like the early days of it being like easier to find inefficient things to do, but then applying this kind of rigor. So I think the filter, there are many, I always say to people, there are many ways to invest successfully and there's many different ways to do it. And so there's not one way that is right. I think a lot of people get caught up in what is right or wrong to do. And I just say we were taught a certain way that worked. It doesn't mean that like other ways don't work. It just means this was the way. And there was a filter of things that we just didn't do. So like it made it really easy to, I meet with groups and they're like, we're proud that we meet with every single hedge fund manager out there. And we say, we actually don't do that because we feel like that's not actually a positive thing for us. One, it wastes the manager's time if it's not something that we would do. And two, you get influenced by who you meet with. So if it's not core to what you think you're going to end up doing, it's not actually helpful to the process. So I would say one, we were very much focused on single sole proprietorships or partnerships that were owned at the time. This all evolves over time with the industry, but at the time it was really focused on, and that was really about alignment and that the people doing the work were the ones getting paid and incentivized. And so he was a really big believer in how you were incentivized and how the structures were set up. That's one piece. Like I remind people, our younger people on our team, like when the one in 20, now it's two in 20, but at the time it was like one in 20, we had hurt, we had hard hurdles in hedge fund land. 
And that was because fund sizes were smaller and the management fee was actually supposed to like just cover the business, right? It wasn't supposed to be a profit center and fund sizes were a lot smaller. So anyway, a lot of it was around alignment. So it had to be like, was the structure of the firm appropriate in terms of, was it a partnership? Was it a sole or was it owned by an outside entity? Stuff like that would easily filter out a number of things. Two is what are we trying to achieve? We did predominantly fundamental bottoms up stuff. We were not going to do high velocity trading strategies. We weren't going to do global macro. We would never invest with someone who didn't share their portfolio with us. We had many a meeting that ended quickly because people would not, didn't matter how smart they were and how great their track record was. If you were not willing to share who you were invested in, we're not going to invest. And I think from a fiduciary standpoint, that made total sense. And so that also filtered things out. So it's just really, there was like a roadmap for the funnel. And also, if we did an initial meeting with a group and we found out there was a reason why we didn't think either what they were doing was repeatable or we felt like it was maybe a one-off thing and not something, again, that you can consistently do, or we didn't feel like it was a big enough inefficiency or you were earning like pennies and you had to use a lot of leverage to make the return work, which we didn't like. We were told to tell the manager why, because he felt like it was really important to say to them, honestly, like, I value your time. You should value our time. And we're going to tell you if we're not going to invest, why we're not going to invest. Because it's not helpful to not really tell them why and then have them continue to spend their time trying to get Yale as an investor. Or if people left and went to new firms and were doing something different or changed, that they could come back and say, we're now doing it this way. We see what you were saying and we're more aligned now. But we were, and we still try to do that here with my team. It's just, I always say, please be direct. People work really hard. They spend a lot of time on these things and it's our job to tell them whether it's a fit or not and be direct with them about it. So I think it causes like a lot less confusion. So anyway, all those things, it's long-winded, but it's it creates like a roadmap for what we're looking at and what we're not looking at. And so you just don't have this, let's look at everything, everything into the bucket. Let's be a little bit more targeted in the types of groups. But a lot of the filtering was around structure of the firm, structure of the decision-making, and then the strategy and whether it was a fit or not. So let me run this Charlie Ellis quote by you. Everything David did was done deliberately. There was no room for good luck. There was no room for artistic thrills. There was no room for adventure. Does that make sense? Yeah, although there was room for adventure, I think. But yes. How so? <laughs> um, oh, David liked to have fun. It's, I think at his heart, he felt like you had to believe passionately in what you did. And you could see it by his enthusiasm, right? For the people that he worked for, all the people. He mentored like a crazy number of people outside of the office. He loved intellectual debate. He loved traveling. He had a joy, a joy for life, I think, in that regard. But there was, it's funny, when I first left, I thought for many years that the biggest, there are so many things we learned, but I thought it was really, the real differential to me was the qualitative assessment of managers. I felt like the industry had started to really do the manager selection thing. And everyone always wants like a prescriptive to-do list on how to do that. And I remember meeting with some people and they'd say, oh, I had the due diligence list of questions. And if I just got those questions answered, I'll make, I'll make a good decision on a manager. And we used to say, but you're missing like the secret sauce, which was the qualitative assessment. What makes this person tick? What type of risk taker are they taking? Because like we always joke around, we start meetings with how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Like how, your question to me, how did you get interested in stocks? What motivates you? Are you motivated by greed or are you motivated by competition? Like these things really matter. And 
a lot of the managers would say to us, why are you asking me so many personal things? Like we're spending like an hour on my background and personality. And we said, we're just trying to understand you because we're actually at heart. We're not picking stocks. You are like, we're betting on you. Like we're betting on people. So I think that was my first takeaway. But to your question about everything was deliberate, I think as I've gotten more experienced and older and now working with families and where we're very customized, for example, in asset allocation, I really like frameworks. He really taught us to make decisions based on frameworks. Everything had a framework. People talk about asset allocation, moving into the alternative space was game changing, but it also created a framework of how to behave. We've brought a lot of the asset allocation stuff into the families that we work with. And it's not about having the right asset allocation. It's about having the appropriate asset allocation for the family and what they're trying to achieve and then allowing it to let you behave more rationally because you have that framework. But if you don't, I always say customized asset allocation is because not every family is the same. The goals aren't the same. The means aren't the same. The size isn't the same. And and so everybody has to have a different set. And that's part of the framework too. Are you even teeing up that framework appropriately? I was listening to one of your podcasts with um, John Hurdle. And I actually thought, you don't hear this often, but he articulated it really well that David never meant for everybody to copy Yale. That was not. And I thought he articulated it great by saying he wanted everybody to think outside the box a little bit more like him, but it wasn't about, the Yale model was never about, I laugh when people say the Yale model, because it was not about everybody having the same asset allocation. That wouldn't be appropriate. And he was really focused on using the strengths of Yale and Yale's inherent competitive edge to create a different construct for investing. So that framework and that mindset, I think, was very deliberate and very process-oriented in that regard. That leads directly into my next question, which is the pioneering portfolio management has had a huge influence on family offices. But I'm curious what you think people get wrong about what's become called the endowment model. Yeah. So I think, again, the first thing I would say is that it's prescriptive. And and, and again, these are things that's hard to talk about things with David not here anymore because you'd like to have him to be able to kind of bounce back and forth on it. But this was something I was talking to a couple of my former colleagues about that there was not, it. there was never like a right asset allocation that's like specific. It was more about what is appropriate for you. And I think for families, sometimes some people, and this happens on the institutional side too, so I'm not sure it's specific to families, but they just want a prescriptive way of doing it. And I always say, like we spent a lot of time initially with the families learning about them because everybody's goals are really different. Like some families want all the money to go to the next generation. Some want none of it. Some want a mix of giving charitably and to the families. Some have family dynamics that make it more complicated. And then behavioral, like I just talk about behavioral. And this was a lesson I learned on the institutional side. You have to be able to create a portfolio that whatever the governance structure is, which might be an individual person, or it might be a committee of people, or trustees, that they can actually stay invested. Because I think the most damage that gets done is in crisis events when the markets are down and you are a forced seller, either because you you need liquidity when you didn't think you did, or you can't behaviorally handle the drawdown because of the way the portfolio is behaving. And, And I saw that through like different investment committees 
about who was able. That was the other book David should have written was on governance. Like he did such a brilliant job in retrospect on governance in terms of just the president of the school, the investment committee, which was mostly alumni, and then the staff all being aligned, 100% aligned. Now they disagreed on individual investments and would have debate on that, but everybody was totally aligned on how to behave, what the asset allocation was and what we were trying to achieve. So I think getting that alignment is really where things fall apart. And I think you can see other institutions where that governance broke down and it, and they might've had the best investment team there talent-wise. And it just, it breaks down because you don't have the governance working appropriately. So to me, that's the biggest thing is that piece. And with families, it's really behavioral because it is different. You're dealing with the principal. It's their money. It's not like an institution's money. And so at the end of the day, they can do whatever they want. It's There's not like guideposts and guardrails that force them as like a trustee to behave a certain way. It's their money. So I think that's where it actually falls apart the most in terms of that piece of it. And that's why we really believe in, again, and we might say that we follow a lot of the learnings from Yale, but we've had to apply it to families. And because of that, taxes obviously are another thing. But that's why I really believe in customized asset allocation. I think it's so important as a foundational framework from which to invest from there. I love this idea of alignment because, of course, with families, you have so many stakeholders. Are there any ways that you learn to try to get everybody on the same page? It's such a good question. I don't know if we have any hacks. I think like communication and authenticity goes a long way. And I think for us, because our approach is not cookie cutter, we might be using the same managers and recommendations. But every time we take in a portfolio, it's a completely new legacy portfolio. We very rarely are taking just cash in. If we do, that's great, but it's rare. So I think it goes a long way to say, to approach those initial discussions with respect and with intellectual honesty and with authenticity, because you don't know everything. And until you really get the family to allow you to talk to the accountants, talk to their trusts and states attorneys, and have everybody on the same page and talking together, do you really get a good idea of what has happened historically and what they want to achieve going forward? But I just think communication at a baseline level, like a lot of people, we deal with like our legacy business, Truvo, was like very large families. So we're dealing with like pretty complex portfolios and with a lot of people, their initial first person advisor could be an accountant or a trust and estates attorney when they first create the wealth. And so you learn a lot from those people because some of them have been with the family from when before they had the wealth creation event. And so you get like the full life cycle. So I think that, and again, it sounds so basic and simple, but people oftentimes want to put in cookie cutter products or cookie cutter things instead of just like sitting back. And I always tell the team as we're training new people up on the client side, like listening, we learn this from David too with managers. Listening is an underrated skill. Listening is a really important skill. And you have to sit back, ask open-ended questions and, and you'll learn a lot. And then what we do is we take in that information, we'll give like a first level rush, and then we'll say, can you react to this? So for example, We'll show a portfolio and we'll say, based on just kind of high level spending, everything else, and we'll say, a lot of places just show you like the median or the mean return and volatility. 
but we'll show from the fifth to the 95th percentile. So you show the tail and we say, okay, so for this portfolio, you have an expected return of X, but like, how do you feel in a crisis event when correlations start to go up? If you had a mark to market hit, I'm just making numbers up, but like a 50%. And you will have some families that say, I literally want to throw up when you say that. And then you'll have other families that say, oh, I don't care. I'm a long-term investor. I'm a private equity investor. Like I, that's fine. I don't really care. That's just like a mark. That doesn't mean anything. It's not actual permanent impairment of capital. And we've, but that is like really telling just in terms of that iterative process to get to the right answer. And that's the behavioral piece because who walks into a room and says, this is my risk tolerance. Nobody says that. So you really, it's this process of communicating creating things to get feedback on and iterating on as you go along. And then every year revisit, we talk about that on a regular basis when we're doing reporting and talking to the clients during updates quarterly. But we also, once a year, we'll review the asset allocation again and just make sure we're not missing anything or if there's been life events for grandkids and stuff like that, if things have changed. Do you think asset allocation can be taught or is there some art to it? I hope it can be taught because I learned it, but there's definitely art. I think one of the other, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the other mistakes people make is they, and David often use fixed income as like a very easy example of this, is they'll create an asset allocation. You create your model and you say, we're assuming fixed income is a safety net and that when the crisis event hits, there's going to be a flight to quality and that's going to go do really well. And then people create their asset allocation model that way, but then they fill the bucket up with things that don't actually behave that way. So whether that's, you know, corporate credit or it's uh, muni bonds, like in 08, when people like filled that bucket with muni bonds that were insured, but were protected by the insurers, but themselves weren't great credits. And then all of a sudden you have an experience that is not unlike, is very unlike what you actually modeled in the portfolio. So that happened to a lot of people with inflation hedges, right? Some some people had things in those last year that didn't actually behave like inflation hedges. And so I think that's where some of those things break down. But I think, and you learn that through experience, you know, taking risk experience, like seeing what works. In, I feel like you learn so much in crisis events, right? About how you thought your portfolio was positioned and whether that actually played out that way or not. So it is art. It's art and science for sure. And, and again, the numbers we always say with models, for example, the asset allocation model is more about telling us, we think, we believe, how the assets behave with each other. And we do ours like in a stable and a we have like regimes of stable and crisis basically or stress. So we have different correlations depending on the environment. And what it allows us to do is just say through quantitative analysis and Monte Carlo simulations, we can evaluate like a large number of paths that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. But we were really looking at not getting with precision the return numbers because we know for sure those are not going to be accurate. You can't certainty forecast those, but it's really about how the assets behave with each other. So I think it's also like a respect for what the model's doing for you and what it's not. And the one thing I've learned that we didn't focus on as much when I was at Yale, and maybe that's because 08 had not happened. 08 was the first event where so many things were correlated negatively, unless you were short subprime, where we like turned to max drawdown as like a really big measure behaviorally for the families. Because that back to that down, that tail event, if you're down 40 or 50% on a mark-to-mark basis, 
if you look at max drawdown, it kind of highlights that volatility does not. Upside volatility is great. I want upside volatility. I just don't want downside. So in a large degree, but it's really like the max drawdown number that helps you. So that's where you're iterating above on those models. But I think, but I think the framework of the original asset allocation model that went from was Gary Brinson's stock and bonds to then David's adding alternatives. And then that model, remember when we first did the model, it was assuming normal distributions and all these things. So I think you get to 08 and that evolves like a little bit more. And so a lot of that is from experience in the markets and learning and looking back at what did and didn't work and morphing it. But I think that the models themselves and then the what you fill it up with is where the disconnect usually happens and they break down. But I do think it's art and science for sure. So you got thrown into the deep end in New Haven and then you moved to another fascinating place, which is Rockefeller University. What was Rockefeller like when you got there and, and how was it different? So Rockefeller is one of the most amazing places. <laughs> I had not heard of it before. And I can't remember who introduced me to Carol, but I had actually, so I had spent a year in Atlanta in between working for one of Yale's real estate managers because my dad was a contractor, like I talked about, and I was really excited about doing that. And I had a great experience. I decided, again, I really missed global perspective and the allocator world. And so I had gotten, and I really wanted to be in New York, frankly. So I was very much focused on being here. And I had gotten introduced to Carol Einiger, and I just found it like so fascinating. She, Carol had been one of the first female partners on Wall Street. She had been a long time. She, I think, started at Goldman and had been at First Boston forever. And it was just really rare to meet with women in the industry. Now, I was lucky at Yale, like we had Ellen Schumann, and I worked with Paula Valen, and we had Lauren Mazur, who I mentioned. So we had a number of women in that office who obviously went on to have fantastic careers. But outside of allocator world, in my world, like there, it was very rare. And so to have someone with Carol's background, also, I, I found it appealing that she had spent her whole background on the banking side. I thought it would teach me something different and that her approach felt similar when I talked to her. And it was in terms of Carol was very good on the qualitative piece and like reading people and, and assessing that. And, and then on the nonprofit side, Rockefeller is a, for people that don't know, a basic biomedical research. It is created over, I forget what the number is now, maybe 20, when I was there, it was like 22 Nobel laureates. It's just an amazing place. So in terms of doing, you have these scientists who spend their lifetimes or more beyond their lifetimes working on trying to have breakthroughs in science. And so if we could like our job in any way contribute to that, that was amazing. But I really viewed it as a huge opportunity. They were, I joined in, I think it was 2000. So it was the height of the tech bubble. We had half the portfolio in hedge funds, which was very unique. And we didn't, and this is a good example. Our asset allocation was very different. We had high in private, high amount in private equity because of the legacy family stuff from years ago, Venrock, et cetera. And then we just didn't, we couldn't take the volatility that Yale could because we didn't have the same revenue sources. We didn't really have tuition that we could, we could charge whatever we wanted. They were mostly PhD students that were there. And then the rest were just scientists, lab heads. And a lot of it was based on giving every year and then charitable giving and then the endowment. We needed a lower volatility portfolio. And so the half hedge funds helped us achieve that. And we did really well through the bubble, in my opinion, like 
that worked out great. And that lower volatility for that period obviously helped a lot. And then I was able to get mentored by Carol was really great. And she really taught me to, to kind of voice opinions. You're at that age where you're now, you have a seat at the table a little bit more. And I also was coming into realizing how much I had actually learned at Yale. I'd been at Yale and you don't really know till you leave that because I, I was at a young age. So that was very helpful. And she really empowered me to have a voice. And so I loved working there. She was, I felt really grateful. Gosh, like I feel like I hit the jackpot. I got to have David to be a lifelong mentor and then someone like Carol who had a completely different career, but you know, equally impressive. So it was a really special place. And then suddenly you found yourself in the CIO seat at New York Public Library. Did you come into the uh, NYPL with a mandate? Yeah. So I, that was David. So he called me up one day and was like, you should be a CIO. And I said, no, I love Rockefeller. I'm not ready. I'm good. Thanks. (laughs) And he was like, no, you're going to go do this. So I I did interview around because I did not want it to look like I only got a job because of David's. But, But I went in, my mandate, they had no investment staff. So I was brought in you, by you a- Clean Slate. Slate, but it was a committee, it was a committee driven process. John Berklin, who had used to run Dylan Reed, had brought me in. And he was when they I think John had talked a lot to David about just in, a lot of us did this when we left Yale, came into smaller places, institutionalized and made sure that as they were as the endowment got to a larger size, that it was really done in more of an institutional framework and making sure they're getting that are sourcing, but it was a pretty high-powered committee. I had John Goodfriend, John Berkland. I was 30 years old. And so it was a big education on standing by myself. And again, Carol helped me a lot on that. David in the background gave me a lot of advice about how to handle that. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of like just trying to make sure that decisions were being made. They had actually done a really good job as a committee. I think the decision-making was a little bit less institutional. And so it was really focused on creating that and creating. Again, it's funny, I got back to writing memos again and all of that. It was a huge honor to have that role. And it's equally like an amazing place because the library is not, as everybody knows, you don't only have the research libraries, but the local libraries play such a role in the community in terms of educating like a lot of immigrants coming in who don't speak English and also for kids after school, like a lot of them go hang out at the local branch libraries. How long did it take you from the day you started there until you felt like the portfolio <clears throat> reflected your views? Honestly, I don't know if we, I got there. I ended up, I was there for two and a half years. And again, it was a great honor to be there. And I really appreciate it. I learned so much. I was focusing a lot of my time, frankly, surprisingly not on investing, which Probably shouldn't have been surprising, but that's because a lot of those roles, when you first come in, it's a lot of, you have to get buy-in from every single investment committee member. It was taking like a long time to get things approved and brought through. And not everybody on the committee believed in asset allocation and things like that. So there was some foundational, and by the way, these were all very successful investors in their own right. So again, it gets back to that thing I said earlier, which is like, there's not one right way to invest, but there was a way that I was trained and where I felt comfortable. What do you mean they weren't invested in asset allocation? No, didn't believe in it. Didn't believe in it. So like some committee members really believed in asset allocation. Others did not. Others felt like we should just pick, I think I had one committee member say, we should just pick the 10 best managers and invest in them. 
And, and so again, like some people have been successful doing that. That's they, or they may have ran their own portfolio where they picked 10 stocks and that was their, the way that they were successful. And it just wasn't. So the question was, I able, was I going to be able to get them on board over time to that mindset or not? And I felt like when I left, it just wasn't going to get there, frankly. I think they, today they're there and they have a, the committees very different. And again, this group had done a very good job of managing it prior to me getting there. So I had made some inroads, but I would say the portfolio did not fully reflect my complete viewpoints because we were still struggling on some foundational pieces, which is why I was open to moving on to another opportunity, which the next phase was like moving into family land. If family offices can be picky clients, how do you deal with, and we've already talked about this a little bit, with this classic tension around very customized portfolios? I think because we're customizing the asset allocation piece, like a lot of that work is d- done up front. And I would say it actually creates a stronger relationship because again, you're going back to listening to the family, trying to really understand them personally and what their goals and family. Like I say to people, I think one of the first things we say is we understand that wealth becomes a burden. And I think some families feel like they're not allowed to say that because it's not appropriate. They should feel grateful for all the money that they have. And, but the reality is the wealthier you get, it does bring with it a level of complexity. Like everything gets more complex. Your life tends to get more, tend to own more homes and get more complex your dynamics with your kids get more complex, like your relationships with your family, siblings, parents get more complex. I think that upfront piece of it really lets us figure out where we're at and where the starting point is and the starting line. And so while we, and again, we have to underwrite the legacy investments. That's where it's like a lot of work, but we are able, once we set that framework up and we're making new recommendations, we are using managers that we're using across the team. So if my investment team, if we're we have an investment committee meeting for a new like manager, that's usually going to go into like most client portfolios. So that part becomes less difficult. It's really that upfront part of like really learning about them. But I think it's all about I'm really goal oriented. So I think from my swimming days, I think that if you're setting up what the goals are upfront and everybody, and I'm a big believer and we can problem solve if we know what the goals are. It's when you don't know what the goals are that it makes it complicated to problem solve. So if it's like constantly changing all the time, that's hard. If it's evolving, that's okay because that's normal. But I think if you can spend a lot of time up front setting up those goals, and again, back to that concept of framework, it just makes a lot of the rest of the stuff not as complicated. Now, I'm not saying investing is tough. It's always tough taking risk. And I have an amazing team that focuses day in and day out on finding new talent in that space. But I think the framework investing creates it. So we have these guideposts going forward for how to behave, like I said, and how to invest. And it makes it a lot easier when we're making decisions or the family changes their mind. And even like we do it on the private, we like model out private investments. We even, we have families where a lot of the individuals are still active in wanting to do their own deals. And so we actually give them budgets. We laugh with some of our families because I say, if you're going to do direct deals, I need you to be prolific because I need diversification. So when we're like creating our private model and we're doing commitments each year, we like might give them an allocation to themselves and say, okay, this is your allocation for the year. You're allowed to go do this on the stuff that you want to do. And we put it within the framework of the overall portfolio. And how involved do you get in those directs? Are you actually looking at the companies yourselves? 
Yep. So we do, so we ourselves do co-invest. We're not doing majority control stuff. We're doing more sponsored, which we get a lot of flow from the families and then from our managers. The combo of that is really fantastic. And it's, like I said earlier, really fun to sit in between kind of the family and the institutional world. And then the families themselves might bring one-off things. So we'll use, usually do a high-level review for them. It's usually they will tell us what they want or we'll ask. So they might say, hey, I'm going to do this because it's a relationship investment, but I really would like your thoughts and opinion. And we always say we always have an opinion on it. So if it's in a, if it's like a VC deal, we don't really do our own directs in VC because we think that belongs in a fund. But if it's the families, we might call some of our VC managers and just say, hey, what's going on in the space? Do you know these guys? Do you know this group? A quick check kind of thing. Or if we know what valuations are in the space already, we might cross-check it. A family wanted to invest in a fund that they knew the principal and they asked us our advice. And I just said, oh, the rest, they've never worked together before. There's no track record. It's like a lot going on. We call it like an Insta firm. It's a huge thing being built out right away. We think it's risky. So I hear you want to do it, but you might want to do like a smaller size. So we don't put as much money into risk. Or they'll say, this is really interesting. I think you should consider it for other clients and we'll do a high level work. And then we think it's interesting. And then we'll dive in as we would for a regular investment and see if it is a fit for other clients as well. So it's like across the spectrum. And how do you know how much to get involved with these private investments? Yeah, I think it's back to that filter concept that I talked about earlier on. We feel like it's a filter. I think discipline like really matters on this stuff, but you, you also have to view it there's one vantage point, which is this is just use of our time. But I think the thing that we also really believe, and this is what's fun working with the families, is it's actually we learn stuff from doing it. So the team does get, not every time, but a decent amount of time, we learn something new also. Or we have engagement with one of our managers in a way that we haven't, right? So there's one engagement as, a, as an allocator looking to give them money to the fund it's another getting their thoughts on a specific direct investment that's coming from somebody else. And so it's super helpful to have those conversations. We feel like it's actually strengthened our relationships with our managers. And we think we've gotten pretty good at, again, that filter, like really quickly saying, oh, we wouldn't do this or the return. Sometimes, for example, we'll get a direct real estate deal and the return is lower by a lot by what we could earn in our funds. So that's really easy. We would not do this. We can earn in the same product type with a huge diversification and an entire team behind it, a much higher return. We don't think you should do this as a one-off deal, even though it's sexy and fun to have a direct deal in your portfolio. Maybe we're just old, but if you've been in the industry for a while, I think being able to filter down that funnel so you're not all over the place looking at everything is like super helpful. So I've borrowed one of your comments about crypto. You said that you might do well in it, but how would you explain it to the client afterwards if you have no framework? Do you still feel the same way about that space? Yeah, I do. Again, I think people, there's been fortunes made and fortunes lost. And I think at our first, and I don't know where that was taken from, but our first, but I agree with that statement. I think the other thing I would say maybe before that is just our seat is fiduciary. Like we're fiduciaries. So we're not, it's not our money. And so that causes us to make very different decisions. If we're a fiduciary, in my opinion, doing a speculative investment where I don't have a grounding on valuation or how or in my head, it doesn't mean that other people don't, but I don't in crypto have a framework for how I decide whether to buy or sell that from an allocation standpoint. 
then I don't think I should be doing that. So for example, like we don't love gold either for that reason. We have families that love gold and we will put it into the portfolio if they really want it and we'll incorporate it. But we don't, some people, for example, think gold was an inflation hedge. We don't, we looked at the numbers over time and we did not believe that to be true and therefore would never put gold into a real assets portfolio. And I think people found out last year that gold did not protect them in terms of that. Now, if you're using gold as a speculative investment and we call it like the fear factor, it might work for that. I don't know. But I find it really hard to know how gold is going to behave. Not that I can predict with other things, but I have a sense in different markets, like how things might behave. And, And again, that concept of do I add or subtract? So I think with crypto... We will even liken it to the platform funds or the big quant funds. Some of those track records are fantastic. But as a fiduciary, I need information. I can't be investing in a black box. And I believe this really strongly. Again, it's not if the family dictates, I want you to make an investment in that, incorporate it into my portfolio, we will. But we're not going to recommend those things as a fiduciary. And so within crypto, I think that falls into it. Now, are there like blockchain technologies and other things that are really compelling and interesting? Definitely, like for sure. And will we continue to follow the space and look at it to make sure if things are evolving, we're not missing anything? Of course. But I guess, and maybe we change our minds, but today that's that's been the reason we've not really played in the space. Would that apply to something like frontier markets? Yeah, it's something I think We might have managers that do on the margin. We don't have any today, like pure frontier. I think it probably is better executed in a endowment portfolio when you have only one portfolio that you're running. Because one of the things we did really well, yeah, like we were early days in Asia before the Asia crisis. And then when the Asia crisis hit, we went in in a big way. It was a really big lesson for us, uh, for me, is we could dip our toes in. When you have one portfolio that's very diversified, you can dip your toe into an area, and David did this a lot, and learn it. Because when you're invested, you learn way more than when you're not. And so you see if you make mistakes, you see whatever. But if you do it in like a small way, you're invested, you get exposure to it, but you're not putting at risk the rest of the portfolio. And you don't care about liquidity. It really works well in that framework. And we did that a lot where it enabled us to then go in big when the dislocation happened. It's a little harder to execute that on individual I think family portfolios where we have, again, we're taking in the legacy investments, we're putting in some of our stuff, but the frontier piece is a little bit harder. But I love the idea of there's some markets that just never move out of frontier land. And then there's others that do. And so that can be, again, in a diversified way, you can do that. But it's it's a little bit harder, I think, in the family portfolios to execute on that. So we might do it through an emerging market manager who has a piece of it in frontier, but we haven't done direct frontier. Do you have a current uh, thesis on Japan? Yeah, we're pretty, we're very constructive on Japan. I, I, we, you get a lot of pushback, right? Because people, I always joke for, I don't know how many decades, a decade or two, the way that you outperformed IFA, and I did foreign equities at Yale. So the way you outperformed IFA was to just not invest in Japan. And people say like Japan is cheap, but, and we were just there actually in like late September, early October. So Yeah, we're very constructive. I think the thing there is you can have all these policies, but if the culture is not changing, you're not really going to affect the change. I think that's the big difference there now is you have all these other things teed up that are attractive. Obviously, the market had a great year, but what we're hearing on the ground is really that. So for example, when college graduates are coming out now, 
they're equally open to going to startups as they are going to like a traditional job. And that to me, culturally is game changing. That's not one, it means that the startups have the money to actually pay them. And two, just if you think about Japan, culturally, that's like a huge change, right? Going on. And I think you're now getting it. So you have not only the government mandating the change, the companies are being forced to mandate the change, right? Because they have generational issues. And because of the demographics, they have succession issues. And then you have now the younger people saying, we want it to be different. In addition to having on a valuation standpoint, really attractive markets. And then you add, again, we don't make bets on currencies, but it's nice to enter a market when the currency is also depressed. So there's a lot of things I think that line it up to be interesting. I think a lot of the negative feedback is around the lack of immigration and demographics and like all that stuff. But that's, in our opinion, a long ways away. We're looking for equity markets. We want to look at like the next three to five years within, and it gets back to that bucket filling. We have an international developed area and it's, we were like, we were underweight Japan. So we, we don't want to be underweight. We want to be slightly overweight at this point in time relative to the opportunity set. I always remind people, one piece of it is like the beta bet. Is the market attractive? Because you want to have wind at your back. But we're active. We're using active managers. We don't have to get the market call 100%. We just have to make sure that the dynamics are there to tee us up for what we think is more attractive relative to somewhere else. And so we feel like those things are all aligned. And would you be willing to override that? I'm always curious how folks balance out what they think about the macro picture versus the individual talent of the managers that they find. Yeah. Oh, such a good question. Yeah. We override that all the time. For example, we we like love Europe as an active manager. We actually, one really easy example is our hedge fund portfolio. So our long short equity portfolio, it's probably, we used to say five to seven years. It's probably like almost eight years ago now. And it, we're pretty concentrated. In it. We moved it almost entirely non-US. And it had nothing to do with us thinking on a beta basis because it's long short that those markets were more compelling. It was an idea that all the guys we had backed historically were too big. So they were really talented. But if you were like, when you started a billion and now you're running 20 billion and you're long levered, how on earth are you to come up with a short book with individual shorts when you're that big? It's just like increasingly more difficult. And as the industry matured, if you think about where I started in the mid nineties to where we are today, the US industry matured in the hedge fund land is really crowded. And we said to ourselves, it's really interesting. There's now talent. There's not the depth of talent, but there's enough talent at the top in Asia and Europe. And it's a way less efficient market. So why aren't we moving our hedge funds over there? So we did. And we literally, until just recently, had one US-based manager in our longshore equity portfolio. We just added one recently, but, but we they were all non-US. And it worked really well for us. We did not have, and they're all fundamentally oriented we're not doing anything. We think we're backing really good talent, but we haven't had as much of the swings, I would just say. I think for what we were trying to achieve, it, it achieved it. So that's an example where I don't think people would have been like, you're moving everything to Europe and Asia. That's a little crazy. But but we were doing it because it gets back to that. What are we trying to achieve here? What, are the, what is the goal of this portfolio? And it's to achieve, it's to look for inefficient markets and achieve kind of equity-like returns and with long and short. And so we just felt like we were better equipped to do that. Now that the world with rates going up and everything else has changed a bit, 
the dynamics here. But that's an example. We'll, we'll totally override it. Yeah. If we feel like it fits other pieces that we're trying to achieve. So Swenson always stressed long-term relationships with managers. Do you have a process for how to deal with lagging managers? That's such a good question. It actually is it's very hard when you build those relationships to then fire them when it's not working out. But I think, and I actually watched David's struggle sometimes with that. It's hard, right? I think that if you go back to my, what I originally said and what we learned early on, which is direct communication and feedback about why. So for example, if we have a manager that is struggling. We just had this happen recently. And because we're running a quant analysis and we're looking at their short portfolio attribution and their longs, or we're looking at the individual stocks and doing analysis on it. Sometimes when the conversation starts getting into it and they're not really like hearing what we're saying, we will just give them our analysis. Here, this is the analysis that we did. Because again, I, I grew up where we were real partners, like a limited partner meant you were a real partner. Let's show them that why are we trying to hide this? Let's just show them the work that we're doing. Maybe we're missing something. We're not like analyzing something the right way. And so oftentimes that will lead to a much more robust discussion and you'll find out more things about what's going on. And, and at the end of the day, I think we're very good at, we've built a team with people that we are all aligned in what we're trying to achieve. And we definitely have a way of thinking, but we're, our vantage points are very different and our strengths and weaknesses are really different. So I think we're very good at coming around on debates about managers in a thoughtful way that takes the emotion out of it. So what usually happens is one person on the team is more just frankly connected relationship-wise to the manager. So maybe me or another person on the team. And so by doing that in a debate with numbers and running through it and dialogue, it breaks out some of that, whatever you want to call it, emotional relationship piece of it. And I think ultimately... If you communicate and you're direct and you're honest and you're not fast and loose and you're not trying to do anything that's, I guess, unfair, the manager usually respects it. It's not, we've not really had a problem with, and we've actually kept relationships or we've looked at groups, for example, in Hedgehog Land and said, you know what, analysis, analysis, they're really good at long only. They've executed on long only. Like they just can't get the short book, right? Like maybe we should just look at them as a long only manager. And would they, is that something they're doing or would be open to doing? Life is long. And David did always say, why do you have to be mean to people? Why can't we just, we used to joke around when he was really nice and then he didn't like the investment. But, but again, just back to this kind of communication, being direct. It just, it, when people are direct with each other and they put out on the table what's going on, it's very hard. It, it makes it easier to make decisions like that than it, or have those conversations than you otherwise would. But it's hard. That's not, it's not fun. That's not like a fun part of the process. Have you developed a, a way to look at short managers? What, what's your thinking on shorts? Yeah. One of our biggest pieces that we focus on in the long short book is ability to, to create alpha on the short only names. We will do analysis on that and look at the names and look at, yeah, like over time, I think a lot of people also do static analysis. The world's getting more sophisticated. So I'm sure a lot of groups are doing it too, but doing more series analysis, time series analysis, rolling analysis, specific periods. We use the quant. We're very robust on quant, but I think we use it to say, is what the manager told us they were doing actually happening? Is that, is the quant matching up with what the manager qualitatively said to us? So if they said, I took this risk, at, in March of 2020 or in 08, I did this because this was happening. The portfolio was this way. We can go back with quantitative analysis and say, did that actually happen or not? Is that real? And again, 
We had one manager say that to us. I remember back like after 08 and our numbers didn't show that and we showed it to them. And what we realized from the conversation was a lot of stuff was happening in options. And if your options aren't getting triggered, they don't show up really. They show up as like spending premium, but they don't show up from an exposure standpoint or anywhere else. And so your numbers can be misleading from that. So that's how we... So this one almost slipped through, but I definitely want to ask you, what was David's relationship with Dean Takahashi like? Oh, it it was, oh, they were, so David was getting his PhD at Yale when Dean was an undergrad and David was his like our equivalent of an RA or we called them like freshman counselor. So they know each other a long time. <laughs> And they were, they were like, I guess, a good example for me. And as I built my team here in different vantage points, they're like, they are completely, if you've met both of them, they're both brilliant and smart in completely different ways. David's way more qualitative, way more focused. And Dean's like very much in the numbers and the weeds, quantitative, like tough. Like you get in a meeting with Dean, he's tough. And the managers really respected that. So the combo of the two of them, and they, and then we got to watch them disagree. Like they would disagree all the time. And so they formed like an amazing partnership. And I think they were really good at saying who's good at this, who's good at that in the way that they approached investing. But they're, I view them as, I don't know, I think other people would probably who worked for both of them would say the same, that they're like very different individuals, but very talented and a very special, special relationship. Like when David, we're all sad. I had David was my lifelong mentor, both personally and professionally. But for Dean, I can't, I was so sad for him when David passed away. I can't even imagine what a loss it was for him. It's really hard. Casey Whelan, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wonderful insights. Thank you. This was fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with your friends. Thank you. Thank you.